Hello, good afternoon. Today is June 21st, 2021. It's a Monday. Hope everyone had a great Juneteenth and Father's Day weekend. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about the going and coming defense in New York. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, this is Greg Lois. How are you doing? Uh, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this commonly relied on defense. It's very important in some uh, employments, particularly those involving outside sales and uh, employees are doing uh, special trips and missions for the employer. I'm also going to talk about it in the context of our new work from home or remote first world. Uh, what uh, work from home injuries are compensable, when are they compensable, and when are they not compensable. So I'm going to talk about that uh, as I go through our uh, webinar today. So thanks for joining us. So we're going to talk about generally denying cases, when that happens and what that means. We're going to talk about commutes, when they begin and whether or not commutes are compensable. Secret, they're not. Uh, we're going to talk about paid travel time and employer-provided transportation and how those can be exceptions to generally uh, commutes not, not being compensable. I'm going to talk about some of the common going and coming type cases or to and fro cases. I'm talking about parking lots uh, and common area uh, accidents. And I'm going to talk about working from home um, because huh, that's becoming increasingly more prevalent as more and more people are working from home today. Uh, it seems like uh, it's become the thing. Uh, so this is totally live. Please join in by asking me questions as we go along. I can see questions pop up at the end. I'll answer as many questions as I possibly can. Uh, and they don't have to be on this topic in workers' comp. They can really be on any topic, and I'm happy to answer your questions. All right, so let's dive in. Let's talk about denials in general. I'm backing up so you can see this next graphic. Uh, an accident happens if we do nothing. See, I can barely get my head over the top of this thing. If we do nothing, it will be presumed compensable. And so uh, the standard procedure in New York is uh, when there is a workplace loss, we're very quickly going to be doing an investigation. That's usually done by the employer, see if it's compensable or not. If we're going to challenge or controvert compensability, the employer, uh, sorry, the carrier on behalf of the employer will file a first report of injury, a Freud ASHO 4, and then your attorneys, we're going to file a pre hearing conference statement and all the documentation it takes to back up that loss. But really, the first step is generally a phone call uh, from a risk professional, whether that's at the carrier or at the employer, that's calling in and saying, hey, we just had this loss. Here's how it happened. Is this compensable? And if not, can we defend it? Uh, and a lot of these questions come in on these going and coming cases, work from home type injuries. And so this is really when we want to be defending these cases, right at the very beginning. All right. In general, an employee who's doing their regular commute, um, any injuries that occur during the regular commute are not going to be compensable. Your regular commute has got nothing to do with the employment. It's not specific to any one employment. And for that reason, your commute's not going to be compensable. Of course, the employer can kind of screw that up uh, by starting to pay for commutes or providing them with transportation. For example, giving them a company car and saying you need to use this when you're in your commute. All those things can uh, lend uh, a degree of control over the commute, which then would make the employer responsible for the commute. So just be thoughtful about some of these benefits that you're offering to your employees. They may actually be extending your workers' compensation exposure. Now, there are uh, commuter benefits which are available both in New York and New Jersey as an employer-employee benefit. Uh, for example, there are certain types of reimbursements that are available to employees. Um, uh, New Jersey's program, for example, says you can't get reimbursed for parking, you can't get reimbursed for tolls, but your employer can reimburse you for mileage and you can even have a special savings account for that. New York has a very similar thing in which you can purchase your bus or rail passes, uh, with before tax dollars. 
just taking advantage of those commuter benefits is not enough to transform the commute into an incident of the employment. And so just offering those benefits to your employees is not going to turn their commute into a workers' compensation uh, exposure event. That's, a, that's not how that's going to work. Uh, the other thing that we see is employers who actually operate transportation networks. Uh, for example, operate a bus company, operate the subways, operate public transit. Uh, and what about when your employee is utilizing that employer-owned transportation system to get to their actual job, their actual employment? In general, those are not going to be compensable. And a good example is the bus employee who's taking the bus uh, that's run by the authority that actually they work for and taking the bus to get to their place of employment. That's not that's going to be deemed their regular commute and that those injuries or any accidents that arise during that period of time are not going to be likely to be found to be compensable. So that's a little bit about commuting injuries. All right, let's talk a little bit about sidewalk rules. These are also called the gray area uh, rules in New York. And that's because we have so many employments, particularly in New York City, in which right outside the employment or in order to get to the employment, there is some kind of dangerous hazard. And, and really we're talking about uh, sidewalk conditions. I'm talking about subway grates or heating grates or vents in sidewalks. I'm also talking about employers who have, for example, they don't own or control the alleyway that it takes to get to the back of their building where the employees are going to go in the employee entrance. But it's very well understood that the employees need to go through that dark, dank, slippery, uh, unkept alleyway in order to get to the back of the employment. So even though the sidewalk right outside of your premises is not technically leased, owned, rented, maintained by the employer, or maybe that back alley that your employees are using it, if it passes two tests, New York is going to say that that is actually part of your premises, and any injuries that occur in that premises are going to be compensable. So here's the test. First of all, again, this is not any anywhere. Uh, this is not applying to any sidewalk. This is not applying to any alley in all of New York City, just, just the one that's really directly adjacent to uh, that employer. So the first test is, uh, is it not shared with the public? Is it a special hazard in that, you know, in generally, it's right outside the front door. Uh, there's a subway grate that leads right to the employee entrance. So we're talking about something pretty specific. Uh, we're not just talking about, hey, there's a curb two blocks away that's not conforming and it's 14 inches high or something like that. We're really talking about something very specific and very close, uh, adjacent, touching generally the employer's premises. And the second thing is that in order to get in or out of the employer's place of business, you have to go on this sidewalk or this alley or the shared stairwell or something. Uh, that's going to make any injuries that occur at that location compensable. And particularly, this is important to know for downstate, for the New York City claims, where we have a lot of subway grates and heating vents and things like that right outside the front door of a place of employment. All right. What about our employees who go to multiple locations? I'm really talking about your outside salespeople, your distributors, your marketers, your merchandisers. And they're going to be in many locations during the course of the day, and they have to travel a sales route. These typical sales routes are, you know, generally I'm going to go to store A on Mondays, I go to store B on Tuesdays, store C on Thursdays, and after they go to that first store, they're going to go to 15 or 20 stores in a row right afterwards. In general, we've been successful in arguing that where the employee is going to multiple locations that uh, and has specific days in those locations, that that's for the regular commute. They're, they're always on Monday mornings going to this one specific location. Guess what? They're traveled from their home to that first location. That's their regular commute for the day. Now, once they leave that location and then they're going to go into a bunch of different stops all along the rest of the day, yeah, those are all going to be part of their um, covered travel because they're going from location to location on a special mission from one to the other. And those uh, travels are likely to be compensable. But 
we're going to argue strenuously that that first trip and also that trip home, if it's always from the same last store, we always end up at that same last location, go home from it. I'm going to argue that's their regular commute. Uh, and, you know, we've seen some success with this argument. All right, parking lots. Parking lot, parking lot, parking lots. We get accidents and injuries that occur in parking lots all the time, particularly uh, this winter, uh, for example, January, February, we had some huge snowstorms. We had a snowstorm in November this year. Uh, so, you know, it, it's icy, it's slippery, and we see those kinds of accidents happening. All right, parking lot injuries. When you call me up and you say, Greg, we had a slip and fall in a parking lot, and is it compensable or not? I'm going to always ask you the same questions. And these questions are, do we own that parking lot? Is that, is that ours? Do we own it? And if it is, you're done. It's going to most likely be your loss, your workers' compensation claim. If you say, no, Greg, I don't own the parking lot. My next question is going to be, do we maintain it? Are we responsible for the maintenance in the parking lot? If your answer to that is yes, I'm going to tell you it's very likely uh, that we're going to be exposed for the workers' compensation loss. The third question I'm going to always ask you is, if you say, Greg, we don't own it and we don't maintain that parking lot. Uh, it's a big shared parking lot. It's right outside of our building or our, our retail location, or it's a huge parking lot in a mall, and we're just leasing out, you know, space 1B in the mall, and we've got nothing to do with the parking lot. Now, the third question I'm always going to ask you is, did you direct the employee to park there? Or did you tell them you've got to park in that spot? And, you know, sometimes our employers are saying, hey, we want to keep these good spots right in the front for our customers, and you employees, you're going you're gonna to go park way off in the way back in the back lot somewhere. Once we tell uh, our employees where to park, we just made that entire walk from their car all the way through the mall to our location compensable because we directed them to park somewhere. So that's like one of those things. Just keep in mind about parking lots. All right. How about travel time injuries? And I'm not talking about commuting and I'm not talking about going from location to location. I'm really talking about when I talk about travel time, I'm really talking about those sort of special trips where the employer's requiring an employee to travel. Sometimes it'll be for some kind of outside uh, event, like a conference or a training or a seminar, or a client visit, those kinds of trips. And we often get this question about, hey, Greg, when this person's out on this trip, is every single move they make, you know, when they, uh, everything they do, is that all covered or not? And the answer is no. They, they, the travel is only covered when they are doing something that, uh, for the furtherance of the visit and for the in furtherance of the employer's uh, trip. Uh, so if they decide, hey, uh, my employer sent me to San Diego to go to a client meeting and I'm having a wonderful client meeting, but then I got uh, eight hours until my flight. So I'm going to go to the San Diego Zoo and check out this amazing world-class zoo that happens to be here. If they get injured at the zoo, that's not generally going to be compensable. We're going to argue like, yeah, they were in San Diego because they went there for a, a uh, employer required travel visit, but then they went off and did something on their own that we didn't require them to do and they got injured on. That's not our problem. We didn't instruct them to do that. Unless their supervisor is telling them like, hey, we might send you to San Diego forever. I want you to go out and have the night of your life and go visit every part of the town and learn all about San Diego and go to these events because I want you to see, unless someone directs them to do that, uh, it's not going to be compensable. All right, next, how about personal or special errands? So uh, we have this go on at Lois Love Farm all the time. Uh, we'll, I'll turn to one of my managers and I'll say, hey, you going to Starbucks? Would you mind picking up one for me too? That would be super duper. Or, oh, you're going to Dunkin' Donuts? Great, I love Dunkin' Donuts. Could you get this for me? And so, you know, people are running in and out and going different places and say, hey, you stop. And we do this to each other all the time. Hey, you're out, you're on your way back in. Could you pick this up for me? Sure. That kind of stuff in general is very casual deviations from the employment to do something personal. Generally speaking, not going to be compensable. 
The only thing that's going to make that compensable is when, in general, someone's instructing the employee to go do this. Well, I, you know, if I ask someone, hey, I'm, I would really like a nice cup of coffee. Would you mind going to Starbucks for me? They get injured on the way back and forth from Starbucks. It's very likely that's going to be my liability because hey, I'm the boss. At the end of the day, my name's on the door. So if I ask someone to do it, I think a court would infer that they felt directed to do it. But there really is no bright line on this, and this is really something to keep in mind. Um, you know, once we're encouraging someone to do this, that's okay. We allow employees to go off premises to go grab food or meet or pick things up or that kind of thing. That's okay. Uh, it's only when you're really instructing them to do it. Uh, and that pattern becomes really uh, established uh, is where these cases are end up going to be your less liability or responsibility. So just be cautious or thoughtful about that. Every single one of these personal interim type cases, I do think is worth a phone call with defense counsel just to say, hey, can I run this one by you? Do you think this is compensable? And in general, they should not be compensable. All right, last uh, topic for today, and this is one that, I mean, we're all dealing with this right now, is working from home injuries. Uh, and, you know, working from home injuries have really, in our practice, have not spiked. I know everybody's working from home now and everything's remote or whatever you want to call it, but we really haven't seen an increase in our work from home or remote accident cases. I think the reason is because the kind of people that are working from home are the kind of people who are just whittling away at a keyboard uh, or, you know, signing papers or something. You know, obviously no manufacturing going on at home, no distributing, no warehousing, no transportation is going on at home. So, you know, really all the places or the types of locations or, or situations where we see a lot of accidents happening are really just not happening at home. The type of people who are working from home are the kind of people who didn't have workers' comp injuries really before COVID. So why would they have them now that, you know, we have so many people, maybe up to a third of the workforce working from home at any one time, really aren't seeing a bump in cases. It's really important though, when these cases come in that you take a hard look at them. Really think, is this actually related to the employment or is this something else? Uh, we've seen cases in defendant cases where people had heart attacks at home. Uh, people had issues where they're walking their dog and they have a slip and fall. And they, they say, well, it was during work hours and I'm walking my dog. Okay, it's got nothing to do with the employment. Uh, it's certainly your employer, you're allowed to take breaks, but nobody told you to go walking a dog in an ice when it's icy out or any of those things. So really take this uh, play by play. I would also be skeptical of the types of claims that we've been seeing uh, where the uh, claimant or the says something like, well, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't required to work from home. And I, I wasn't actually working at the time of the loss. I, I was commuting home from work and I got in a car accident. You go, okay. But I had work in the trunk of my car. I had my firm or my, my office laptop in the trunk of my car. And I planned on doing work when I got home. Okay, that doesn't matter. You know, that's not going to transform that commute uh, into an injury arising out of the course of employment. Now, when you're looking at work from home injuries, I think we should be uh, a little bit skeptical of really get to the bottom of how did this happen? Why did this happen? Who directed you to do X, Y, Z? Uh, but unfortunately, we're going to be stuck with a lot of it. I've defended a case in which a claimant said they dropped a piece of paper on the floor and then they bent over to get the piece of paper that they had dropped on the floor and they banged their own head on their own desk and had a concussion. You know, we look at that, we say, well, what could we have done to prevent that loss? And the answer is nothing. Uh, it's their own office. They banged their head on their own desk. There was, it's unwitnessed, right? They're the only witness there. And unfortunately, we get stuck with some of these work from home type injuries or these types of cases. So, you know, that's just something to be thoughtful about in general. Uh, many of them are going to be found to be compensable. Investigation is key and questions into what was actually happening at the time of the loss. Uh, was this actually furthering the business of the employer 
or is this something purely personal and nothing to do with the employment? All right, now we're into the fun stuff. I'm hoping that there's some fun questions for me. Uh, really enjoy doing this mainly because I get good questions. All right, uh, here we go. Ha <laughs> ha, Paul asked the first question. And um, it's a fun one because it's got nothing to do with the going and coming defense, Paul. I'm glad to see that you're asking this question. Uh, and then, by the way, uh, please never feel like there's a question that you can't ask on a different topic. I personally like uh, these random sort of randomizers, uh, as I sort of call them. All right, so Paul's question, Greg, I'm beginning to find more and more claims being established for consequential psych, in particular the diagnosis of depressed mood with adjustment disorder. Any tips or strategies on how to deal with these? Okay, so great. Great uh, uh, New York workers' comp question because, uh, you know, if this case starts off as a pinky injury and two years later it's pinky, elbow, now the right shoulder, his hips hurt because he's been using a cane, uh, he's got temporary blindness in one eye, and of course the blues. You know, there's some sort of consequential psychiatric. It's the easiest sort of throw in that a claimant can do is just throw in some consequential psych, right? I mean, it's an easy case, easy thing to do. Uh, the answer, or my answer for how we defend these or how to defend these is you've got to fight tooth and nail on every single additional body part, every single expansion of this injury uh, into more and more body parts. And particularly where it starts becoming uh, systemic, you know, it's not just a scheduled loss of use body parts, not, not a hand, finger, foot, or toe. Now it's getting into the low back, and now that's going to give me a consequential psych because I've got the blues because I'm upset about not working or whatever cockamamie story they have. We also know that the claimants have a lot of psych doctors out there who will just throw uh, depression onto any case that they want, and they'll just throw it right in. Uh, the board, as you know, uh, actually came out with some medical treatment guidelines to try to limit uh, the psych that was coming into cases, and those have not been implemented yet. But, Paul, great question. And the answer is, I think you have to fight tooth and nail anytime you're starting to see any consequential or additional body parts coming into a case. And that includes a system like psych. The answer is immediately that person should be sent for an IME, and the IME should be pretty comprehensive. Uh, you know, a lot of psych diagnosis are really just subjective parroting of the claimant's complaints. You know, the person says, well, I don't have the energy I used to. Don't want to do things with my family. It's like, okay, you got consequential depression. There's nothing really to show for that. Uh, and so really, I think what you need is a really strong IME who's going to challenge that, those claims and, and push back on it. Uh, I would never let psych get established in a case if we can uh, avoid it. It just adds a lot of cost, a lot of complexity, a lot of time into a case, and it's unnecessary. So uh, the, the strategy is to fight, fight, far, fight any consequential. And my strategy for you right now would be to recommend to you an IME physician who would be less paternalistic, less sympathetic, and really push this claimant a little harder. The other things I'd be looking into is taking the testimony of the claimant, right? I want to know how, you know, psychiatric uh, conditions on their own are not disabling, right? They're very effective medications for depression. Um, very, very uh, uh, depressed mood adjustment disorder, as you're listing here. They're very effective psychotropic meds. Uh, most people, something like a third of all adults over the age of 30, are on some type of psychotropic med for a mood disorder, adjustment disorder, or depression, and they all seem to be getting along fine. So my argument is, Judge, yeah, they could have this diagnosis, but where's the impairment? 
And so that's what I would focus on. Uh, in cross-examining the claimant, I like to focus on uh, what are your activities of daily living? What are you doing before and after? What's your social media saying? I want to know the age of this person to see, you know, what are they telling other people or, sh or showing people they're doing on Instagram or some of these other performance sites? Uh, what are they up to? And, and really use that to sort of attack them. Great question, Paul. Thank you. Uh, next. Okay, Chris asked a good question. Travel time injuries. Greg, what's the bar for an injury caused at dinner? Say drinking at dinner, walking back to the hotel, and slip in the restaurant. Does it matter if they're having a dinner alone versus dinner with a client with respect to a commensable injury? The answer is yes. I'm very interested to find the circumstances of these travel time injuries. Again, the more they're sort of deviating from like the employer required aspects of the trip, and the more they're sort of getting into like, oh, I'm at the San Diego Zoo and I'm drunk and I fall into the lion pen. You know, you really need to find out like what the specifics are. In that case, Chris, if you're telling me, Greg, uh, hey, I think uh, the, the guy, they, they were meeting a client. They were drinking. It was expected. They're expected to wine and dine the clients. They're leaving the restaurant and they slip and fall. You know, the drinking it doesn't really help because you don't really have uh, an effective uh, intoxication defense really in the state of New York. You're really just going to say, well, is it reasonable? Were they supposed to be there? Is it furthering the employer's business? Does it truly arise out of in the course of? So that's the questions that we would look into and determine whether it should be compensable or not. Okay. Greg O, uh, Greg O, sorry, didn't mean to say your name. Greg says, Greg, when do you think the Workers' Compensation Board will put labor market attachment back in place? <laughs> Great question. Everything's open. Restaurants are open. Bars are open. Uh, you know, I went to my daughter's fifth grade graduation. Nobody was wearing masks anymore, right? So yeah, it's supposedly over. Shouldn't we be able to argue labor market attachment again? I think the answer is that by the end of the summer, the board's going to come to its senses and allow us to make that argument again. Uh, we've seen here in New York, if it, you know, we get uh, Wall Street Journal, we get the New York Post. You see, everybody's coming back. You know, Morgan Stanley's forcing people back. Even Goldman's forcing people back, saying if you don't come back to work by September, you know, we're going to start docking your pay. You know, there is a big push to try to breathe some life back into the uh, terrible hellhole that New York City has become uh, since the pandemic. Uh, and so I think there is going to be a push. The other part of that is the board will not be able to argue that there are no jobs available or labor market attachments not a real thing. I've got employers that are screaming and crying and begging and stealing to try to get employees at this point. You can't get people back to work. So it, it's really the opposite situation where uh, you know the board really needs to take away this labor market attachment defense, get these people back to work, get people back into the labor force, acknowledge reality. All right, I'll scream and yell that from the rooftops, Greg, uh, for uh, my rest of my life, but the board doesn't do things reasonably or even intelligently a lot of the time. This is one of those areas where labor market attachment should be withdrawn uh, or should be allowed again, excuse me, as a challenge to the claimant. There are plenty of jobs out there. Employers can't even hire people fast enough to fill the jobs that are out there. It's the number one complaint I'm getting from my self-insured employers right now. So it's ridiculous that the board's not allowing us to bring up labor market attachment at this time. All right. That's all the questions for today. Thanks for everybody who asked a question. It truly makes it a lot more fun when we get those. Uh, come back next month. I look forward to seeing everybody again. Uh, have a great uh, rest of uh, June and see you in July. Bye, everybody.